0: You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, Bill Powers, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, recipient of the North Carolina State Bar John B. McMillan Distinguished Service Award, and a founding member of the Center for Legal Education and Advocacy.
1: Hello, I'm Bill Powers, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Law Talk. Today's episode is with His Honor, Judge Matt Osman of Meckler County, 26th Judicial District. This podcast is intended more for law students and legal professionals, maybe view from the bench type of perspective. I'm gonna call it the nine or 10 questions. I don't know how many we'll get through. You've always wanted to ask a judge, and these are obviously big picture, kind of items the view from the bench is different and obviously you have rules of we have rules of professional conduct you have rules as a judge and so we're going to speak in big terms if we can if there are instances of specifics that you feel comfortable going into that's great but thank you your honor again for joining us and gracing us with your presence i, I really like these kind of more laid-back kind of conversations and where we wrap back and forth i know what i think but i've never been a judge <laughs> sure uh, thanks for having me uh, thank you your honor thank you again for joining us let's kind of jump right in and we haven't really prepared terribly much for any of these questions, so I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer or a better answer. Let's ask a tough one right off the uh, right off the bat. Have you ever lost sleep over deciding a verdict? And meaning as a judge you wake up in the middle of the night and you think about Absolutely. It has happened some
2: in criminal court. It happened to me more when I was in family court. Mm-hmm. Family court where you're making decisions about who is ultimately going to raise the children how property is gonna be distributed, issues of money. But the most difficult decisions that cost me the most sleep involve decisions about children. Perhaps there were some allegations of abuse or you're just simply trying to decide where these kids are gonna stay, where are they gonna stay at night? And sometimes it was really clear about what the decision should be, but many other times there really didn't feel like a right or wrong answer whether the time should be split, whether it should be weekends, whatever it should be. there As long as you could justify it under the law and explain it, it was fine. The law didn't say what you had to do. There's a tremendous amount of discretion that comes to you in family court. But with that discretion comes a heavy burden and a heavy weight. And so those types of decisions were the ones that kept me up at night of trying to decide where the kids were going to be.
1: And as an attorney who handles criminal defense and family law perspectives, uh, cases, I don't know if one side or the other always understands the perspective. So I'll give you an example. A criminal law practitioner on a DVPO, domestic violence protective order, may view something entirely different and not fully understand the impact that a family law attorney would have upon a family law attorney and judges, a lot of clients don't know this and we have to Family law in particular, there's a huge period of time that we spend explaining the system to our clients. Family law cases in North Carolina are not handled by jurors. They're handled not in superior court. And they're handled in district court with a district court judge. And regularly, from a pure numbers perspective, a number of cases filed, I think, are the most financially complicated matters out there. Now we have business court and things like that, but in a family court case your jurisdiction is not set by controversies in excess of $25,000. You can have absolutely no money in a marital estate, or you could have a $100 million in a marital estate. It's a district court judge that's deciding that. And one of the things that you decide, the numerical things are less problematic to me, that like, equal well, distribution, what's marital property, what's the valuation, what's the distribution. When you're trying to figure out the best interest of children, which we call the polar star in North Carolina, it's not always clean. In fact, sometimes an imperfect parent, a parent who's made mistakes, is still necessary in that child's life. And calculating what is in the best interest of the child is incredibly difficult. I didn't right. get this until I served as best interest counsel right. on a case where I wasn't an advocate for a mom or a dad or one of the parents. I wasn't an advocate for the child's expressed interest, as it, I've done work as GAL as well, and Ad Litem. Best interest was the closest thing that I can even imagine to being what a judge was because I had to consider, Dad does this, Mom does this, I don't particularly like this, but I need the kids need to have X, right. Y, and Z in their life. They need to have the stability of the school. Or, and y'all might not, listeners may not get this, but in family law cases, who decides where you go to church? Who decides what doctor to see? Who decides what sports they are allowed to play or not play? Who decides? In COVID, we had a, we had lots of disputes. Like one, one was a masker, one wasn't a masker, one. And I would think, as a judge, that would be really hard. It to, is.
2: And family court is not, or it should not be, about winners and losers. Oh no! Like you said, it's the best interest of the child. So we're trying to figure out what is in the best interest of that particular child. It's not about mom winning or dad winning or losing. It's about what's best for that child. In a criminal context. As you said, in district court, judges are both judge and jury. In criminal cases, so I am the judge, but I'm also the fact finder. I wouldn't say that I've lost sleep over verdicts in terms of guilt or innocence decisions, but the ones that are gonna trouble me more are sentencing decisions. So I have found that this person is guilty and has committed this crime, and now I need to sentence them. A lot of times, it's fairly straightforward. In North Carolina, we have a lot of structured sentencing where the legislature has laid out The boundaries of our sentences, and there's not a whole lot of gray area within there. It's pretty limited. But even then, we still have to make some decisions. And so Mm -hmm. sentencing, I think, is much more likely to weigh on your mind, your heart, and your conscience
1: than, I think, guilt and innocence decisions. At least it has for me. This next question, I think, comes from a law student. And so I'm going to put all kinds of asterisks, caveats, warnings on it. I think I know the question they're asking, I think the answer may surprise them. So I'll just ask the question and then I'll let you kind of work through that. Sorry, I'm gonna throw you a ringer here. Have you ever given a wrong verdict? Um, Yes, I'm sure that I have. Challenge though
2: is I may not know which case it was wrong in at this point. I'm sure that I have, I'm human, all judges are. We strive to make the best decision possible based on the evidence and facts presented to us and in accordance with whatever the relevant law is. But we're not gods, we're not perfect, we don't know everything, and we are human. So we do our level best. And I know that probably doesn't give a lot of comfort to people, um, but it 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 happens. I think it's also important to remember our system of justice, innocent till proven guilty. Right. Our whole system is based on the idea that it is better for a hundred guilty men to go free than it is for one innocent man to be convicted. We don't, as judges or juries, don't find people guilty or innocent. We find people guilty or not guilty. And not guilty isn't saying you didn't do this. It's saying that the state has not been able to sufficiently prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you did. I might think you probably did it, I might think there's a really good chance that you did this, but unless I'm convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that you did it, then the law compels me to find you not guilty. And I would hope that any mistakes I've made have erred on that side, have erred on not guilty of someone that did something. Then, in fact, convincing someone or convicting someone who was truly innocent—I hope and pray I haven't done that—but I'm human, and we do make mistakes. The important thing is to try to learn from those and make sure they do not happen again.
1: I think this is a great opportunity to tell law students and help them understand: it's discerning the facts in court is a deliberative process, and the answer that you give—or you just gave here—is a prime example of that it's more complicated than you may think. So my, my response to this question would be what's wrong? And I'm not trying to be pedantic here or obtuse or coy. If you're looking at the facts knowing we in life, we don't really have tape record or <laughs> tape records. We're not recording every instance. We're seeing it more and more in court. But the truth of the matter is that the wrong verdict could be what really happened versus what was presented in court. And I try to flesh it out with clients, meaning the state has the burden of proof, the state has the burden of production. And while something may have indeed happened, the verdict is correct due to the lack of evidence and using that very high standard. And people don't understand that. They just I see I've represented victims of cases. I see this in family law cases. I see it in criminal cases where they just see black and white, right and wrong, and that's not how it works in court. There, A lot of it is, you know, as, as best we try to prepare, you roll into the court and, and unexpected things happen. And the standards of proof go from no evidence, if you think of it as a series of hurdles. I draw this out for clients where you have no evidence, you have some evidence, and then you maybe get somewhere close to reasonable suspicion. Based on reason and common sense, you have some evidence of some type of either wrongdoing or evidence that something took place or didn't take place. Then you have probable cause, which is a probability. It doesn't mean necessarily more likely or not, more probable or not. But there is a probability, something more than reasonable suspicion can't be an unparticularized hunch or general suspicion. You have to have facts and evidence to support that you've got probable cause. Then somewhere you get up to the greater weight of evidence, more likely than not, which we see in a lot of civil cases. Then in child custody cases, excuse me, in abuse, neglect, dependency type of cases, TPR, termination, permanent rights, you've got clear, cogent, and convincing evidence. Then you've got reasonable doubt. Then you've got beyond a reasonable doubt. And those are all steps and burdens that the the person who carries the burden of proof of production have to get over. And so more likely than not, you may say more likely than not, I think that probably happened, but that's not what was presented in court. And it doesn't mean the state dropped the ball doesn't mean that they didn't prepare. doesn't mean law enforcement did the wrong thing. It just wasn't enough to present. I have been fortunate to teach occasionally at the police academy or justice academy, whatever it's called here in Charlotte. And I tell police officers that there are some cases that you just walk into, and it's a bad set of facts. There's multiple, you know, a bad wreck case in DWI, a bad wreck case. There's ambulance everywhere. There's people running around, and it's hard to tell who was driving, who's telling the truth. And I don't know if people, litigants in the system, realize that it. it's, it is that's why we do things totality circumstances. We look at a huge panoply of different information and try to do our best to discern things. So, I don't know if, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that sort of how it feels to you that you're? It's not a guess. You're intentional about this. Correct. And there are protections in the system that you have to follow.
2: Correct. You have I make incredibly detailed notes in trial that I go back and look over. I'm not just guessing. I'm not just saying what my gut tells me mm-hmm. actually happened. I have to make decisions based on what is presented in court. And I'm very intentional about figuring out what happened based on the evidence in court, not what I think happened, but what actually is presented in court, and then applying that to the law to come to a decision.
1: And I think you'd be less than human if a verdict didn't bother you, meaning mean, as a human being, right. having a suspicion something took place, or more likely not something took place, but having that burden of following the law. Right. We're not robots. We're not robot right.
2: umpires here who are just passionately deciding what happened. Some people may advocate for that, but I think removing the humanity from the decision-making process would be a problem and would be wrong.
1: And I've ironed this all the time, DWI case is a good example, that the breath test ticket, the ticket you get the machine. If we didn't have this process in place to protect our rights and our constitutional rights, if you had a number and we always believed every aspect of the number. All you'd have to do is staple the test ticket to the judgment commitment. You wouldn't even need a judge. You would just say this is the number. That's not how the system works. It's complicated. It's messy, and that doesn't mean it's imperfect or perfect or wrong. That just means that's how we meet out justice in the mm-hmm. country. And it's that's what I think. That's what actually what I love about the law is that is discerning and working through this. Okay, here's another one that I think this is the everyday. Jane or Joe may be asking this question. I know what the answer is, but do you ever hate the criminals appearing before you? And it uses a couple words, hate and criminals until they're convicted. <laughs> they're not criminals. And I doubt very, until proving guilty. I doubt you hate anyone. There are things that you may not like. There may be right. things that anger you, but so do you ever hate your Honor, do you ever hate the criminals appearing before you?
2: No, absolutely not. There mm-hmm. definitely are behaviors and actions that you definitely do not like may strongly dislike. Mm-hmm. But I don't hate the people that show up in front of me. Mm-hmm. And my personal feelings should not and do not impact the verdict
1: or the ultimate sentence if there is one. Yeah, as a practitioner, I, my former law partner, Tom Bush, had all these great sayings. And one of his fam- famous ones was someone who was a— maybe a irascible personality said, that person is like sand in my shoe. <laughs> you know, it's just an irritant. But that doesn't mean that you're gonna change your ruling based on whether you like someone or not like someone. In fact, quite the contrary. I have clients that, by the way, I have some clients who I just don't particularly like individually and I tend to work even harder for them and try to be even more patient with them. I try to realize that people don't see me. I don't always see clients at their best and I don't necessarily have to agree with everything they say in order for me to want to help them. And there's some that if they call me two in the morning, I go, this is my standard in life. If you call me two in the morning, well, I'll come help you change a tire on the side of the road. Most of my people, I would do that. And there's some that are more of irritants to us. And I think that's across the board. But that's life, right? Right. There's, right. I think we deal with that across the board. Is there one case that has affected you the most, now you've had a wide and varied legal career more than 20 years you prosecuted and you've defended you've worked in administrative law you've been a judge I'll leave this one open to you I've had a couple that have affected me in some ways good and and affected me positively I learned a lot through it in a prior conversation you and I talked about one time Chris Bragg judge Chris Bragg changed my perspective on law substantially and that affected me
2: what about you, individually, personally? personally? Sure. Um, I can think of a couple. As a judge, I can't give specifics of it, but there was a case involving a special needs child, and I have an adopted child with profound special need. And that case, the facts of it, a video, some things in that case live in my mind and will live in my mind forever. I think I probably went home that day and cried thinking about that case. And if I thought about that a lot today, I probably would again, because it was just such a... Hard case given the facts, but given my own personal experience of uh, raising a child with profound special needs, but I didn't, nor could I, let my personal feelings impact what happened. From a defense context, there were a lot, but I very clearly remember a case involving a young sailor when I was in Charleston who was charged with a number of drug offenses, and I was defending him in a court-martial. And the root of his drug problem was going over to Iraq, where he was a corpsman, Navy corpsman. So he uh, provided medical care to a team of Marines in the field. And that was, they were in Fallujah, back when Fallujah was called Bloody Fallujah. And he literally had Marines dying in his arms. This young man comes back, has no coping skills, no support network, and falls into a life of addiction. And that case was hard. It was emotional, the sentencing aspect of that case, some of the testimony that was presented from family, some of the people that testified on his behalf, the judge who was a Marine, I think was deeply moved based on some of what we presented, but just the facts. And that Mm -hmm. case has really stuck with me because did this young man make bad decisions? Yes. Were his decisions criminal? Ultimately, yes. But once you got to the root of why these things happened that his goal in the beginning was just to serve our country and to literally help other people. He was a corpsman. He wasn't even a real combatant. He was just trying to help people that were hurt. And he came back broken. And that case has just really stuck with me when dealing with other cases involving addiction issues. And I've been involved heavily in the treatment courts in, in, in Mecklenburg County. And I often look back on and draw on that case defense defending that young man when looking at those courts and the people in the courts?
1: I don't know if the general public, I feel certain the general public doesn't understand this, but even law students and professionals don't always get the level of humanity that we deal with in in the district courts and the Superior Courts of North Carolina. It's really where the rubber hits the road. and. There are a couple of cases that I can think of and still bring tears to my eye. Mm-hmm. I wrote an article about a client I lost a couple, few years back where uh, addiction uh, issue uh, and there are a few cases that you would not be human I, and you, I don't think the law no. calls us to be automatons. I think we are become better lawyers and better judges and better prosecutors and better police
2: officers. And it's important to remember that I often see people on their worst day. The day they're in front of me might be one of their worst days ever because they're in front of me. Or if that's not the worst day, whatever it is that
1: brought them in front of me
2: was their worst day and their lowest point. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind.
1: Let's see. I know some, some of these are so basic. I don't want to waste your time <laughs> asking. But let's do some big picture ones where we're just reassuring people. A little sure. Bit. Do your political beliefs influence your verdicts. Absolutely not.
2: I don't sit there and think, what would a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a member of the Green Party do right now? Right. No, I don't believe they do, nor do I believe they should.
1: I personally think, in my humble experience, the best judges, actually best lawyers, I'm going to apply this across the board, are people that you would have to guess what their political belief is, because not that they're not without opinions. But they're willing to be open and listen to things applying their life experiences and not prejudging a matter based on a strict set of what team you're on or what you're playing for and i think it'd be incredibly unjust i for a far-right republican to be fearful and go in front of a what is perceived a more progressive democratic judge versus or vice versa i i, I I don't, I don't, there's no place for that in my mind in courts. You agree with that? Yes.
2: And we, and if that does happen, then you get into issue of something called judge shopping. Right. Where attorneys on either side may be trying to continue or extend their case or put their case in front of a judge because they expect a more favorable verdict. And I'm sure that many attorneys do have perceptions that this judge is better for this or better for that. But uh, I hope that we as a bench do our best to avoid that. To be seen as more favorable on issue X or Y, and to just apply the facts to the law as mm-hmm. it is written as simply as possible.
1: And I don't know who wrote up it said with justice for all but favor towards none. Our, right. We used to have a great pattern jury instruction. It was called. oh, I go through all these. You got function of the jury, guilty or not guilty, and oh gosh, it's escaping me now. But it says you have no right to wrong, no pain or a wrong to assuage, and, mm. and it's not used as much in criminal court because it almost sounds like it's a greater way to do evidence coming in and where justice comes in, garbed in the robe and, and tips to scale, but there there are no rights to wrong. There are societal issues that apply. We're going to try to change society by hammering one person as an example necessarily. we The political party really goes out the window in court, and that may surprise some people. Now, there's some reality situations where Certain defense lawyers always argue probable cause is, you know, the highest pole vault level world record to get over. Where maybe certain prosecutors argue that it's the the width of a dime <laughs> to get over. <laughs> highest aim, the the argument, the penitentiary instruction was called highest aim, the highest aim in any legal context. So, well, that's how my brain works. It takes a minute. To, I'm ruminating <laughs> things a little bit. Here's a good one, and this is a light conversation we're having. I don't, but um, I know what I think. And uh, do funny things ever happen in court?
2: They do. It's important to maintain a certain solemnity and formality to the proceedings. People are coming in, they're expecting justice, they want to be heard, and if we're just laughing and joking it up, they're gonna lose faith in the system. Mm -hmm. At the same time though, sometimes funny things happen. Something funny is said or shown in court, and we're human, and -hmm. we maintain our senses of humor, and sometimes you need to be able to take a step back and just chuckle at that for a minute, and Mm -hmm. then you move on. But you can't make the proceedings so rigid and so harsh that people aren't free to be themselves.
1: I remember one time I was trying a jury trial in Moxville, Davidson County, which is on the edge of Winston-Salem. And it was a heated case cross-examines and examinations were heated. It, it took us, we had a really good prosecutor on the other side, I cannot remember his name. And we had a really senior level judge too, and we were there. Oh gosh, two or three days, which for a DWI case is getting long in Superior Court. It may have been longer than that. And the jury hung, and which means if you're a practitioner, they're out for a long time. And the judges tend Superior Court give the jury the time that they need and want. Or they were hung, and we have in North Carolina we have things called dynamite charges where we encourage it's a pattern of jury instruction we encourage jurors to listen to one another. And I'll never forget we had gone through several of these things. It had been a a couple of days as i recall and the judge called all the members of the jury back in and they had handed some notes out this is where there is a little bit of drama in the courthouse that kind of does it's actually more some would say exciting to me it's more nerve-wracking than what you actually see on tv and i play games in my own mind who is gonna, you, you, you i don't know if you know this i try to predict who my person is going to be I've done that. When I did jury selection myself as a yeah. lawyer, I've done that, yeah. And so you look and see who's carrying the, the envelope notes. and yeah. the notes. And I'll get to the point here and apologize. But I remember they were, what's the term? They were irrevocably deadlocked is the question. There's a court inquiry. And, and this is in Moxville. Okay. This is North Carolina. This is just real straightforward, salt of the earth type of people to be <laughs> rather than to seem. And I remember the four person stood up and uh, the superior court and so there's the drama, but court reporters in there and and until uh, you're in know, the superior court courtroom it's hard to get the feel, but Moxha's this beautiful old courthouse. And he said, uh, mister You're you the four person and they identify themselves for the record and he said, Are you able to come to a verdict? And a very polite southern draw said, Judge, you can't t- t- teach pigs to dance. And <laughs> <laughs> the judge was like, What? And I remember He smiled, but was very professional, had the juror go back into the other room and then asked counsel, the state of Iowa, (laughs) saying to me to approach the bench. He goes, what does that mean? I said, that's in the Southern vernacular. It means you." he wasn't trying to—I think the court wanted to know if he was calling his fellow jurors (laughs) pigs. pigs. He said, no. (laughs) He said, "It just— there are some people that you're not going to change your mind and it comes from the old joke don't try to teach a pig to dance they're never going to do it and they're going to get mad at you in the process basically and what he was trying to say nicely is we just have come to agreement that we're not going to be able to do it no one's going to agree it doesn't matter how hard you try and and it it was a serious case it was a very serious case and there was that humor in the courtroom mm-hmm. between the professionals. I remember going to chambers and just chuckling going, because you don't know what's going to be said mm-hmm. in court. I've had witnesses say things in court. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So, all right, here's another one. This is, I think, probably submitted. And I don't want to get into the Scottish kilt type of argument. But <laughs> what do you wear under your robe? And I do see different looks. It's sure. Been, I remember, I don't know if you knew her, Daphne Cantrell. Not only did she wear things on her robe, but she had this beautiful lace Ruffled collar. Yeah, that she used to wear. And I always just thought, man, that was so neat that and I miss Judge Cantil. She, Cantrell, she was a great mentor. But what is there a uniform and what do you I tell you what I wear, I just wear
2: essentially a suit minus the jacket. So dress pants, a shirt and a tie. Right I, I'm pretty old school when it comes to that presentation. We're basically we're lawyers, we're wearing a suit, but instead of a suit jacket we have the robe on instead.
1: Right. And my brother works. He's an attorney, but he does admin court as a judge. I don't know. They, it's not in this state. They, I don't know how they do it. He's in, in the Midwest. And uh, I bought him a robe when he got elected. And apparently I got the wrong time type, and it was too much polyester. And he's like, y'all don't realize how hot that thing is wearing. It's really cool <laughs> when you put it on during the the hooding ceremony or whatever you want to call. It. But do you have a favorite robe? Do you have more than one?
2: I have one, and it's the only robe I've ever owned. Really? Uh, when I was first elected back in 2010, then Judge Bilkenstein told me where to go. And he said, get a choir robe. Don't buy a judicial robe because they're cheaper. Mm. And so there's this one well-known website that furnishes all kinds of robes. And they have a link for judicial and they have a link for choir robes and you can click on them and you can see literally the identical <laughs> robe but they are more expensive for judicial so i got myself a choir robe it's black no one would ever know and set now that i've told them and it is the same robe i've always had but it is not the most comfortable it is polyester but it just wasn't something that i felt compelled to invest hundreds of
1: dollars in and these are questions that I'm glad we asked you this. I always want to know. I have another question. When you graduate law school and you get your Juris Doctorate, you have the three stripes on your sleeves. Do you all have any fancy stripes or anything on judges? No.
2: In fact, when you go through New Judges School at the School of Government, we cover things like the robes. There have been judges that have gotten in trouble because they came in on Valentine's Day, for example, with a red robe or a green robe on St. Patrick's day, something because they want you to keep it simple and they want you to maintain the formality and you don't want people to come into court and think it's a joke. So the idea is, and I think it's for the same reason that some denominations, some preachers wear a black robe because they don't want you to be distracted by what they're wearing. They want you just to hear what's happening. And so we don't want the focus to be on our dress either what's on the robe or what's underneath it any more than the preacher on Sunday doesn't want you focused on his suit or what he's wearing he wants you focused on what he's saying and so i think that's the real purpose of the robe is to remove any distraction
1: right decorum is correct now yeah. as a defense lawyer i get away
2: yeah, more but no, we don't have like in the military. You might have stripes on your sleeve right. for years of service, or combat medals, or ribbons on your chest. Right. No, no, the, the black robe is the black robe is the black robe. There's nothing. Right. There's no nothing distinctive on it, nor should there be.
1: And judges are they're different personalities and personality types, but they is encouraged to be a little bit more. I don't want to be insulted. I remember we were celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of the court of appeals when i was with ncaj and we did a dinner at nc state and there were a lot of gray suits white shirts and <laughs> yellow yeah. or blue ties and maybe that comes more naturally to some people than others but i think there's this i i, I can't even remember the last time i appeared in front of a judge it didn't have some sort of dress pant or dress shirt and it's not like people are rolling in there with t-shirts or anything like that Let's talk about uh, – actually, you probably up a resting point if I've got you here. I can – maybe if you don't mind answering your sure. question. Tell me I – when mean, you went from – correct me if I'm wrong. You went from the role as a prosecutor and having an opinion and a job to do as an advocate. Yes. Tell me about that transition from being an advocate to impartial and tell me about the process of – It's a big deal when you put your left hand in the Bible and raise your right hand with your family and while judges use the family Bible or whatever religious text they want. Tell me about that transition and the training that you go through. I honestly have no idea what you do. Do they set you down in a room and say, okay, y'all, stop doing this or do that is it that is that that is it that basic is that simple or is it all just law
2: the school of government at unc chapel hill offers some really good classes for new judges so when i first before i first took the bench it's a two-week class and so the first week is in december so before you actually take the bench because you're sworn in january 1st okay so the first week is in december And then the second week was either late January or February, I don't recall, after you've already been a judge for a little while. And so you do go over lots of basic things, but there are some assumptions. The idea here is that you're a lawyer that's been in court and you generally should know how things go. So when it comes to court operations standpoint, there's not a lot of focus or training on that because the expectation is you already know how things operate and that's why you want to be a judge. That's part of your qualifications. I think that the shift occurs more from thought processes, the way you look at things. You're not simply trying to prove a case. You're no longer an advocate. You now are listening. You spend the majority of your time as a judge listening rather than talking and advocating. And so I know that in the beginning you do catch yourself. You do catch yourself with the questions you may ask that may come across as a little bit too aggressive or a little bit too much advocacy related, I think you have to be really careful. And I think it takes judges a little bit of time to grow into that role and to become more comfortable, whatever their background may have been, whether it was prosecution or defense. And I had both of that in my background, but my most recent job before becoming a judge was as a prosecutor. I ha- You have to just, you have to change your mindset and it needs to be a conscious decision. You do have some training on that, but yet a lot of the training that you go through is just on different areas of the law. I came, I did not have a significant family law background. I came out of a prosecution perspective and then before that defense with a little bit of family law. So of course I had the greatest interest in the fam- in the school of government classes on family law because I wanted to learn as much as possible about that before I heard those cases and did that work. So a lot of the, the training is just based around that. But the how to be a judge, that's, there's a lot of, there's some on the job training there It's important, I think, find mentors. I had some judges early in my career that I was comfortable going to and talking to about big decisions or just about how they handled certain issues or how they might address something or just how they ran their courtroom in a certain way. And there were lots of judges that I was comfortable talking to, a few in particular that I was comfortable talking to and just getting their take that kind of informed who I eventually became as a judge.
1: Who swore you in? I'm sure you remember.
2: The chief district court judge at that point was Judge Lisa Bell, and she swore me in. And you've been sworn in now three Uh, times? This is my third term. So, yes, 2010, 2011, 2015, and then 2019. Yes.
1: I would think, and I could be wrong, that the full weight of the mantle that's been bestowed upon you when you stand in court wearing the robe and... I remember it as a law student swearing an oath to the Constitution of the United States, Constitution of North Carolina. You do something very similar as a judge, as I recall. Is there a period of time where you're like, oh, gracious, this is this is really happening? I'm sure it's a little bit of excitement, but it may be a little bit of... Uh,
2: yes, a- after our first won election, everything, it was just there was just this euphoria, this excitement. And then a little bit of reality sets in as mm-hmm. that fades. But I will forever remember January 3rd, 2011, My first day in district court, I think we were sworn in on a Saturday. I think January 1st that year, our first day of the, of our judicial term was a Saturday. And I may be wrong on the days, but I think it was January 1st. I know we were sworn on January 1st. So my first day in court, I was assigned to 4170, fourth floor. One of the district trial courtrooms in Mecklenburg, I was signed up 4170, January 3rd, and I walked in the morning. I vividly remember who my clerk was, Dana. I remember who the DA was. I remember who the defense attorney was in the first case. And so they're going through some of the administrative stuff and I'm just sitting there because there's not a lot for me to do until they call a case. And then all of a sudden the DA calls a case for trial and I kind of look around. I was like, all right, we're doing this and things are going along. They're going fine. And the defense attorney rises and makes an objection and I was paying very close attention and I was making notes and everything and it just got really quiet when she made the objection and I kind of looked around and I realized, oh, they're waiting for me, (laughs) right? (laughs) To rule. They're waiting for me to make a decision and to rule. And that was my welcome to the bench moment. I don't remember the type of case, but I I remember, as I said, I remember the DA, I remember the defense attorney, I remember the clerk, I remember them vividly. And I remember that moment. And then once you get over that hump, okay, I made a decision and then we just roll from here. But there is that first welcome to court moment objection and then, like I said, everyone stops and looks at you, and you're like, oh, this is the part where I talk. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anything can completely prepare you for that moment because you never know when it's going to happen or occur.
1: I think that's an amazing story. I remember uh, we used to have a judge in Charlotte named uh, Bill Scarborough, William Scarborough, a, a, an amazing person. Fought in the battle of the Bulge. He used to smoke on the bench and used to play solitaire. <laughs> he was so quick that put his uh, feet up on the bench, oh, too, yeah. if I recall. Oh, there's a reason for that. He yeah. had to the, wear he, foot issues, yeah. Foot issues due to as I recall, losing toes yeah. turned into war. Yeah, It was painful for him. And I used to walk in and he used to call me Stretch. He'd stop court and say, Good <laughs> morning, Stretch. Thanks for <laughs> joining us this morning. And he eventually, I think, aged out, as I recall. And he went into the private practice. And I remember watching him. I just was in the courtroom. This is in old courtroom 2209. And I don't remember who the judge was, but he was sitting at the defense table, which is... It just was on it was almost unsettling for us baby lawyers and judge scarbo was known for sua sponte sustaining objections if he heard a piece of evidence that he didn't think was proper he thought he was the gatekeeper if he thought that the state introduced a piece of evidence that was improper or the defense he would sustain the objection say i'm not considering it so he was sitting at the defense table got guy's client sitting to his left and during the testimony, he said "sustained," and he was the defense attorney <laughs> during the trial. And I got such a kick out of that. He was old school. He he taught me so much in the law. I remember who she eventually became a judge herself. Libby Miller was the prosecutor at the time, and old Carol Bozard, and or excuse me, the Carol's. There was Bozard and Kilgore. And I know Dana, Damon is since now retired the clerk of court's office, but those are people and faces that you'll never forget. This is a personal question. I don't know if you want to answer it, but <laughs> do you find yourself sustaining your own objections at home with your family or how do you, does your wife's perspective on how?
2: Well, I'll never forget. I mentioned Judge Costanji. Another piece of advice he gave me was, Matt, remember that when you go home, there are no bailiffs to protect you.
1: <laughs> Great, Great.
2: So point. make sure you don't wear that robe at home in a figurative sense. You're still dad, you're still husband, and just because your role may have changed professionally, your role has not changed as a husband and father. And so, no, don't do that. But I think it is important to remember and to be careful not to, I used to joke that you become a judge and all of a sudden your jokes are funnier, you've lost 10 pounds and your Mm -hmm. hair looks great because everybody wants to be complimentary and everybody's suddenly your best friend. When nothing's really changed between December 31st and January 1st, people just may be seeking to curry favor. And you gotta be really careful not to let that go to your head. Thankfully, your family will typically not let that happen, and they will keep you humble and grounded, and mine has, and I appreciate
1: that. My uh, my wife, Sammy, been married to her 25 years, and every once in a while, she'll say to me, stop lawyering me, stop. I may or may
2: not have heard that a few times in my life,
1: (laughs) fairly recently as well. (laughs) I I now have. And I'm, Sammy's an amazing individual, and I love her very much. And I'm learning more about her, and probably more about myself being married to her. But I've got, I get to the point now where I ask the question: Are you wanting an answer, a resolution to a problem, or are you wanting me to listen? Right. Lawyers, yeah. I have a terrible headache. of Just saying, the Sam's, the, what was this? The just the facts, man. From Dragnet, I don't remember the guy's name, but just get to the facts and give a discerning yeah. answer. And most of the time. That's not what Sammy wants or my daughter wants. They want me to listen and empathize and maybe towards the end, offer some guidance or advice. And my
2: wife sometimes gives me a hard time and deservedly so for my use of the word reasonable. So Mm -hmm. we'll be just talking about or discussing or debating something and I'll talk about whether something is reasonable or that's reasonable and she's Mm -hmm. we're not in court. You know, I'm not another lawyer. You don't have to look at (laughs) through everything through the same lens. So stop using that word.
1: My wife will use it against me on occasion sure. uh, with things. So, what's it like being a judge and having next door neighbors? Do people, are they more standoffish to you? How do you, I, one of the things that drives me crazy at church is people want to ask me legal questions all the time. And oh, I, I get to, that too. I have to nicely say yeah. respectfully, Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate for me to answer those questions or I had, a, I had a friend call me up and had a homeowner association question for me. And I said, I am talking to you as an ordinary person. I'm not proffering legal advice. My malpractice carrier would not want me giving you legal advice in this area of law. So it's all anecdotal. Is it the same way as a judge?
2: My neighbor, I have a great relationship with my neighbors. No, I don't think they treat me any differently or act any differently around me. I do have people that still ask me legal advice and I will decline to answer. Mm -hmm. I can talk generalities about the court system, but I can't give you legal advice. What's more awkward is just when I'm out and about, and there's an inherent tension between being a judge but also being a politician. These are elected positions. And so I am not self-promotion isn't in my nature, but yet politics is about self-promotion. Being a judge shouldn't be about self-promotion, but we have an elected judicial system. And mm-hmm. so I have to balance that at times. There are plenty of times though, like I'm at my kid's baseball game and one of the other dads says, what do you do? And it's always, it's sometimes a little awkward. I'm a judge because a lot of times people don't know how to react to that. moral, Or they've never met a judge before. Most people don't know a judge. And so people are just going, oh, okay. Um, sometimes it's a conversation killer. Sometimes it's a conversation starter. But I, most of the time, people just don't entirely, I think, know how to react to it because they've just never met a judge
1: before. Let's talk about that a little bit. You are – you're presently a candidate. Yes. I think you – did you just file? Or yes, for okay. Superior Court. And I, apologies because I don't keep up with that as some, but I know there was this filing and then unfiling right. based on some – I don't know if there was a lawsuit or something filed. But as you're a candidate now for what? Superior Court 26B, which is in South Charlotte. Okay. Which means you maintain your position as a district court judge and any the election is what?
2: This November. So maintain current position while at the same time running for the next position.
1: I don't know if people realize, I actually ran for judge one time, so I had some experience with this where it is a partisan election. Uh, there You get straight ticket polls and not polls. I found people would ask me questions where I had an opinion about things individually, but I didn't think it was proper to answer it as a judge. How do you? kind of
2: work through that it's hard the code of judicial conduct for North Carolina has some pretty strict limits on what judges can say and do just in general and then in a campaign context it's even harder so your candidates for county commission for Congress they can come right out and say this is how I view this issue this is what I'm going to go to Washington Mm -hmm. DC or Raleigh or what have you and this is what I'm going to advocate for and this is my position and what I'm going to do I can't come out and tell you my position on a lot of issues, even especially a lot of political hot-button issues. And that's frustrating to people and that's frustrating to voters. And so we have to work around that and talk about our background, our experience, and Mm -hmm. things like that. But it can be hard because people do want to know where you stand on specific issues. But the law places some really significant limitations on what we can
1: say. So it's not easy. I'll say that. And I'll say – on law Talk, and we use the term for the record, in law and court all the time, for the record. Anyone who wants to come and be a guest, judge, I don't even know who you're running against. So if, whomever that may be wants to come and talk and give their perspectives and their experiences. The show is not, this podcast is not political, it's apolitical. It's meant to make better lawyers and better law students and help us educate the uh, people with about the system and within the system. So this is not a political thing at all between us. But it is interesting to ask the questions here. How do we go about doing these different things? I do it professionally. Sammy hates it because she's very social. Believe it or not, this may shock some people. I'm actually quiet on her personal life. I know that, even you probably think, (laughs) how is that possible? You seem pretty extroverted to me. I have close friends, sure, and, and I'm goofy, and I send you goofy pictures. But I'm not the guy at a dinner party, the life of the party. Part of that's just not who I am. Part of it is I use more than my 50,000 words on a daily basis. And part of it is I don't want to get engaged in conversations about the law. More than once, people ask me what I do for a living, and I'll mention my work doing marketing or things like that. If I mention law, the first question I say, I'm an attorney, and they say, what type? And I always joke and say, ha, a good one. But I try to avoid the conversation, but I will pick a subdomain practice group that I think is not is largely without comment. So, I don't tell people I do divorce law because then I become the, let me tell you how the system got me or whatever. Or I don't even mention criminal defense, anymore. I say I help people with traffic tickets or a minor little, mostly district court, and try to stay away from that. Is that the same as a judge? Do you really talk about where you're working in a particular area or do you think it's important to say why well, I work in the district courts and because a matter could become in front of me I'd likely recuse myself if I knew the person, but do you, what is there a concerted effort to avoid talking about certain t- topics or subjects?
2: I'll tell people what I do. I'll mm-hmm. tell people the courts that I'm generally in right now. And for the most part, people don't come tell me their personal experience or their tale of woe with the court system. I get occasional questions that are clearly seeking legal advice. Mm-hmm. No, for the most part, people want to know some general questions and things mm-hmm. like that, but it doesn't get...
1: It doesn't get too in the weeds, no. Let me ask another question because you have a military background. I have a nephew. He went to Coast Guard Academy. A guy's just a wow, really smart person. And he's stationed now in, out towards Elizabeth City. I think they've got a, I forget the name of it. Maybe Elizabeth, I don't remember. But he has been in, let's see, he was stationed in Hawaii. He was stationed in Seattle. He's been a couple different places. And I remember another episode you talked about, you were in the terrible places, Yokosuka, Japan and (laughs) Spain and Charleston. And for the record, if you're going to join the JAG, I would encourage you to join the Navy JAG as opposed to maybe Army where you could be in Kansas somewhere. (laughs) Fort
2: Sill, Uh, (laughs) Texas or San Diego. But
1: when you're selected as a judge and you're assigned in one of your first assignments, in the military, I think you put down your first two or three choices. I don't know if they still do that or not. But is it the same thing as a judge? Do they say, do you have a preference for criminal court? Or I think in some instances, like if you're a family law attorney in Charlotte and you become a judge, chances are you're not going to be in family law for a period of time because you may have cases or litigants that you've already represented or known personally. So how does that work? Is it
2: For the most part, when you become a judge, the most likely scenario is that you will just fall into the track of whoever you're replacing. So, if you're replacing a judge who was in criminal court, you'll Hmm. primarily go to criminal court. If you're replacing a judge who was in family court, you'll probably go to family court. Now, that may not always be the case. And I know that over the years, I've had three different chief district court judges, and they've all asked what, if I had a particular preference, if I wanted to stay where I was, or I wanted to move to a different division to hear a different type of cases. They've all been interested in that. But generally speaking, you're going to slot into the spot for whoever you're replacing, unless there's been some other movement and
1: there's a need to move things around. I think if I were to senior district court assigning, that's who signs it, I think, right? The chief district court judge, yeah. yeah. I would try to mix it up. Uh, I'd like for years and years I did almost exclusively criminal cases and now we do a fair amount of family law and I like mixing it up intellectually. You have done a, a lot of different types of work. proceeded over family court cases, DWI cases, drug treatment courts, which is a pattern court for the nation. People come to Charlotte and see what we do for drug treatment court. District Court judges in North Carolina do involuntary commitments. They do proceedings in juvenile court, both for abuse, and neglect, dependency, as well as delinquency. Have you done much? Is there much plaintiff's work in Charlotte that you all do? Or are- There
2: is some civil in terms of car accidents and things right. of that nature, personal injury. that That can be at the district court level if it's not so severe in terms of monetary damages and things like that. One of the things interesting about Mecklenburg versus other counties is, if you're in a smaller county that has four judges, those judges have to and will have to do anything on any given day. In Mecklenburg, we have 21 district court judges, and so that provides the opportunity to specialize a little bit more. The way our assignments are done are, you may only be in family court for a few years at a time, or you may only be in criminal court this year. And so that has pros and cons because it can be a little groundhog day if you're doing the same thing every day. On the other hand, you can develop a certain level of expertise mm-hmm. because you're seeing that same type of case every day, whereas a judge elsewhere might be having to do a little bit of everything. Certainly pros and cons to both approach.
1: If I were ever to wear a robe, this is gonna sound odd. I would either like to be appellate level because I like the intellectual aspect or I'd like to be a district court because that's where the rubber hits the road in my mind. Let's talk a little bit about Superior Court where you aspire to be because a lot of people in North Carolina don't realize this is that sometimes you're here, meaning in your home district, and sometimes you're not. Now, COVID's changed that a little bit, but how does it work in Superior Court as far as where you're holding court, for example?
2: Like you said, in District Court, we, except in the rarest of circumstances, we're only going to be in our home county, which for me is Mecklenburg. I'm only going to be at the Mecklenburg County Courthouse. In Superior, The general rotation is six months in, six months out. So you'll be in Mecklenburg for six months and then you'll be in Gaston County for six months. You'll be back in Mecklenburg and then you'll go to Iredell, anywhere within our division, which pretty much is from here all the way west out to Murphy. And so you're six in, six out. And I think that harkens back to the old days of when judges literally rode a circuit. They literally rode from town to town on a horse. And the judge would come into town and you do cases and the judge would move on to the next town. Mm. And I think that there are a lot of reasons to maintain that. If you have a really high visibility case, especially something that could be politically charged or otherwise – Bringing in an out-of-county judge is a great way to insulate that process from any local pressures. Or if it's just a high-visibility, high-profile case. We've seen instances in the past where there were really high-profile shootings in North Carolina, uh, in Charlotte. And a lot of those times they bring in judges from other counties to handle the trials. And I think that's wise Mm -hmm. to, again, insulate that presiding judge from whether it's local, social, or political pressures that they may feel.
1: I get that, because one of the best things when I was riding the circuit as a criminal defense lawyer is I, oh gracious, I saw North Carolina I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved meeting different people. There was a certain excitement of going into, because the law is the same, Right? You know how there are local rules and procedures you need to learn, but the law is the same. And I loved meeting the new people in the court system. We have some really neat people. On the other side, prosecutors, We believe it or not, we don't hate each other and we don't hate judges. We, don't, we get to know the clerks and you know, I know you share a love of the barbecue like I do and, oh, yeah. and, and um, I think my love of pork rinds may be unparalleled in the state, but I loved going to different jurisdictions and meeting the people and eating different restaurants and sitting in Marshall, North Carolina, looking at the French Broad River, being interrupted every 15 minutes by a giant bell. And the hardest part in that courthouse was to not look out the window and stare at how beautiful the background is. And I've also been in courthouses that, um, there's one that was literally in a strip mall in the more eastern central part of the state where you're thinking, I can't believe we actually hold court here. <laughs> but I think as a judge, I think that'd be really interesting. And y'all, yeah. listeners, district court judges tend to stay in their district, but every once in a while you get called, I'm sure you've been called to... Let's say there's a police officer or a prosecutor or a defense lawyer that's in the community, it's known. And what they'll do is they'll bring in a special prosecutor from another county and a judge from another county. And so it avoids the appearance of impropriety. I've done that one time. I went to Lincoln, Lincolnton,
2: to hear a case involving where one of the litigants was the husband of a prominent attorney. And so they wanted to bring in an out-of-county judge to avoid any
1: appearance of bias. Mm -hmm. And that... um, I always tell clients, I'm a weather person. I predict the weather. I don't make the weather. (laughs) So I try to predict how I think rulings are going to go down and understanding judicial philosophy and things like that. And traveling around, I think, as a Superior Court judge, would be really interesting. Your Honor, we've gone way over again. My little meter here says 58 minutes. I apologize. But thank you so much for your gift of time. My pleasure. If there are questions that people have, if there are legal topics you'd like to discuss, if you'd like to be a guest on Law Talk, Give me a call at 704 342 HELP. My name is Bill Powers. You may also reach me by email at lawtalkwithbillpowers at gmail.com. Thank you again, Your Honor. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for legal issues and legislation, practice tips, professionalism, and policy discussions. Want to talk to Bill Powers? Call 704 342 HELP. That's 704 342 4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decision.